0: Amen. You can be seated. We're going to be looking in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And I want you guys to know that everybody is somebody in God's body. Okay? Everybody is somebody in God's body. That there's no big eyes and little use. That we are all called to walk into our divine purpose. And that each and every one of us will stand before God and give an account for the supernatural gifting God has placed on the inside of each and every one of us. When you stand before God and give that account of what you did with the supernatural thing by God's grace that he put on the inside of you that wasn't from you, but that was from God, that you might deposit into the earth to increase the glory of God on the earth, when you stand before God and give an account for that thing, there, there won't be anybody else standing there with you. I didn't think I'd get a lot of amens there, but that's okay. That's all right. You guys are just warming up. I get it. See, so you're not going to be able to stand up there with anyone else And look to them and blame them for what they did to you. For the reason why you couldn't walk in your divine anointing and what God had called you to do on the earth. You're not going to be able to look at daddy and say, daddy, if you'd have been a little bit better. You're not going to be able to look at mama and say, mama, if you could have done this. You're not going to be able to look at at this person or that person. It'll be you and God, and you'll have to give an account for what you did with that supernatural thing that God put on the inside of you. You say, man, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, it's not harsh. Because the grace of God gives you all things pertaining to godliness. So what that says is, is that everyone that hurts you, if you will give that thing to God he'll double it and then turn it into something that makes you walk in a greater anointing than you could even know or you could even comprehend or even understand. That means when we give our pains and our scars to God, that means that he can actually turn them into something greater, increase our anointing, increase our influence, and then we can walk in a greater thing than what we ever thought we could if we give it to God the great lie of the enemy is, is that there's not enough grace for you, that you've messed up too much and that you can't ever get it right. But I've come to tell you and put Satan on notice that there's a grace from God that can overcome any obstacle that you face. So sometimes we got to quit whining about this or that, and we just got to grow on up and grow up into the stature of Jesus Christ and let the grace of God do the work it needs to do and go ahead and step into the thing that God's called us to do. And so the enemy works through hurt, and he wants to get your focus off of God and his sovereignty and get it on to, well, this person did this, and this person did that, and this person did that. And then he'll pull you down into the dumps with them. I don't know if I got anything left. We'll just have to just... <laughs> Do I got anything? I think so. Let's try. Okay. Thanks, Josh. I needed. <laughs> I needed that encouragement. It's in there. It's in there. So what happens sometimes with God is when God is dealing with us is that sometimes. The church will not let God deal with them. And they will put up walls and structures to protect the hurt that they have and begin to build walls instead of extending arms and pulling others in. So what happens when that happens is is when a church begins to build walls instead of bridges we then begin to have an attitude towards the world that would say, even the gospel can't save you. Now, we would never say that. We would never say, God can't save you. But we act as if and never share the gospel with those who we don't think were worthy enough. And we begin to hurt those instead of offering the message of grace and salvation and pulling them in, we, we begin to hurt instead. So what happens when that happens is God has to reposition Himself, and He repositions Himself and moves away from the church and begins to protect those, to, to to protect those in whom we're firing shots at, so that they can receive the message when it's finally time for them to hear. So God has to actually leave the church sometimes and protect the world to till we get our message straight. Uh, that's why Jesus said that. Judgment begins in the house of God. So to the level that we've allowed God to be ruthless with us is to the level that we can be ruthless with others. See, if we were more ruthless, if we were as ruthless with ourselves as we were with those who we think we are higher than. The world and the church would be a better place. But there comes times in the, in the church's uh, seasons to where sometimes we just don't live that way. And we begin to be maybe hateful or, or begin to, to, to live kind of some other kind of way. And so sometimes the world has to position themselves in such a way. And Jesus has to change his position and position himself uh, in such a way. And that's kind of what's going on in our text today. But I'm here to tell you, and this will be the message that you guys will hear from me a hundred times. And I hope you hear it uh, a million, trillion, zillion more. But that Jesus is better than you can ever imagine him to be. And to the level that we understand the goodness of God will be to the level that we operate in the giftings that God has called us to operate in. Because if our goodness of God only comes up to a certain level... We won't see him as the greatest treasure that has ever existed. Thus, we won't step out into great exploits and do great things for him. So the reason why I make a big deal about the goodness of God, and that's one of our core values is, is because until you start to see God is good, you'll never step into the good things that God has for you to have. You'll continue to punish yourself and not forgive yourself and, and, just, and just live this kind of low-grade guilt as if the Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough for your life, and, and you'll just kind of live this kind of way. And so Satan doesn't care if you become a Christian, where Satan gets a Afraid is when you start becoming a Jesus follower. When you begin to start stepping into the thing that God has for you to step into. And you won't follow something that you don't think is good. You just won't. And so the goodness of God is a core value for us and for God himself. So God spent human history revealing himself before Jesus comes onto the scene. And Moses gets Yahweh, the breathy I am that I am of God. And he begins to roll out what that means. is that he's a God that is slow to anger and kind and that he's trying to lead a person and a nation into the place that flows with milk and honey. See, God is setting it up for Moses to say I'm good. You guys can trust me. I can deliver you from slavery. I can deliver you from bondage. And so God gives Moses on Mount Sinai, gives him 613 commandments, 10 of which are the moral code, what we know as the Ten Commandments. Some are civil and ceremonial. uh, And it just is to make this unique people understand kind of the nature of this God. Now, what had happened in Jesus' day is they took the 613 commandments of God, and they said, look, we don't want people to even get close to breaking one of those commandments, so we'll make our own commandments and build a fence around the law to where they won't even get close to breaking God's commandments because we'll set commandments up out here that won't even allow them to. And that became an oral tradition uh, that began to be passed. And so when Jesus is showing up on the scene, he never sinned, and he's operating in the laws and the principles in which God has, or, uh, has God has instituted. But they had so elevated their principles out here that they couldn't even see that he was sinless because they had elevated the fence above the, what God was actually commanding his people to be. So Jesus has to come in and say, hey, I'm the door. I'm the gate. In other words, I'm trying to get you past this level of being uh, of fence builders who are trying to keep people out. I'm not trying to keep you from not disobeying my laws. I'm trying to get you to walk in the law where you become the law in and of yourself. Man, I need to slow down some here. So instead of honoring the oral traditions, Jesus isn't saying the law is something to be like this about. He's calling us into it and said, by my spirit, you can actually walk in it and not have to live in fear of breaking these commands. That you would embody those things. So this is Jesus' greatest dilemma. And to think that Jesus could have went anywhere in the world to manifest himself and deal with evil. He could have went to places where they were having human cannibalism, sacrifices. He could have went to, but you know where he goes? The most religious place in human history, first century Judea. He has to go to the people that knew better. Because if he doesn't slay that demon of religion they'll be keeping people out of what god is calling them into for all of human history that organized religion colluded and talk about collusion colluded with the roman empire and killed jesus and that's what the structures of men always do they create barriers to keep god out And that was the great thing about the founding of our country, is that those people who were founders of our country were students of what is called the First Great Awakening. You guys with me? Or okay. Something wrong? Got something on my shirt? Or okay. You guys are staring at me scarily, so you can stone me afterwards. Just let me get it out here, okay? They were students of what was called the First Great Awakening. And a man by the name of George Whitfield and another man by the name of Jonathan Edwards began to preach and begin to call the people back to God. And George Washington and, and Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and all these people that were influential in that time grew up in the embryo and in the incubator of revival. So when it comes time to establish a country, you begin to have a country established on the principles of God. Now that's not to say our country is perfect, okay? But the idea that all men are created equal and have certain unalienable rights... Even though those men, some of them did not live up to that standard, they still put that standard in place where a people could come along later and say, look what you said is not true. See, they had a prophetic vision enough that they could see where the country was eventually going to go and they could appeal to something that they had said even though they weren't living up to the standard at the time. Is that Okay. See, sometimes we get the prophetic word before it becomes a reality. We all know that, right? So there was an appeal that was able to be made because there was a people that had grew up in the womb of revival. Now, what revival does is it takes the blinders off of our eyes. And as Tim said, and as Isaiah said, it gets us to see who we actually are and keeps us from creating an us and them reality of where it's us against them. And it says, no, we need God's grace, and they need God's grace. And it turns us into crucified soldiers for Jesus who are in love with Jesus and want to spread the message of the gospel. Uh, And so so the whole idea of revival is, is that the blinders would come off. We would realize that as the people of God, they're not the problem. I'm the one with the spirit of God. And greater is he who's within me than he who's in the world. So if the world's not changing and something in me is greater than the world, then the issue's not the world. It's me. I've heard people say this. Uh, in the last days, the church is going to get brighter and brighter, and the world's going to get darker and darker. Here's the problem with that statement if the church gets brighter and brighter, and the world gets darker and darker, then where was the church? Sounds like we were huddling up somewhere, hiding instead of walking into the power that God has called us to walk into. So how do I know if I'm being if I'm blind? Cuz being blind is a matter of deception. We can be blind and not know it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, those that claimed to know God, couldn't even see him when he showed up in the flesh. How will we know if we're blind when Deception comes because if deception comes and I'm blind, how will I be able to see truth when truth actually comes? How do I, how do I see and know that I'm blind? Well, Jesus gives us a, an example to know how we're blind. He says something to the effect of this. Before I get the speck out of my brother's eye, maybe I should get the dokos... Or the beam or the log. It was a Greek word used for building structures. So this is something that can hold the weight of a building. Let me get the beam, the foundational part of a structure out of my eye. Where then I can see clearly, clearly to get the speck out of my brother's eye. So how do we know if we're blind? Well, if you're walking around with a pair of tweezers and you're claiming that you see better than everyone else, then you, my friend, are actually blind. But those of you that are in the log removal of your own life and are humble people that are seeking the face of God, you, my friend, are actually able to see. So Jesus comes to peel back the layers to show what God is really like. Jesus, in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So if you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus. (laughs) If you want to know God's intentions and purposes for your life, look at Jesus. And so the mo for Jesus is when he sends his disciples out in such a matter of fact way, where he says, "Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, and go tell them the good, and go preach the good news." And he says this statement freely: "You have freely." So, in other words. The only people that can handle the apostolic commission of God are those that have been cleansed themselves before they can go out and try to cleanse someone else. The root of blindness would say, I don't have to be cleansed. I'm clean in and of myself. And then that would say, grace I don't need. I have my own ability and works that will get me to God. See, grace is, I haven't made myself, but I've been created. Non-grace is, I create myself and I define the terms of my life. And God is calling us into reality, which is grace. Not that nothing ever happened, but that it did happen and only God can set it right. We better move on. So our text today deals with a man and Jesus. And this man in our text today in Luke 19 is a rather short man. His name is Zacchaeus. Matter of fact, he was a wee little man. If you've spent any time in church. And nothing makes a man matter if you called him a wee little man. So short by this standard in the first century is really short. Because I think the average height is like probably like 5'2", 5'5 at that time. Short people. So for this man to be, to be shown in the Bible as short, he's, we're talking four foot something here. We're talking maybe even uh, a dwarf, maybe even a little person here. And this person that the Bible talks about, this Zacchaeus, actually has high status. So there could have been something going on here with some kind of a, and you guys probably have heard this before, a short man syndrome. You've heard that? Short man syndrome, which would say because of a deficiency that I have, I'm going to overcompensate in other areas so that I won't have to deal with the deficiency that I have and learn how to be comfortable in my own skin. An overcompensation for a insecurity or an inadequacy to cover up what is really the problem. Technically, it would be called an inferiority complex. An overcompensation for a perceived shortcoming. It could look even good, right? Somebody works really, really hard and gets behind uh, things and, and pushes really hard. But, and it looks great on the outside, but actually it's a wound on the inside. And the want of the praise of men, because they didn't get the praise of men maybe in some time of their life. And know if they push the right buttons... The praise of men will come and it would medicate this deficiency. But yet, never deal with the real issue of the insecurity uh, at the time. It can look like sacrificial things and, and hard work. And it can look really good. But covering up the issue of guilt. Of something that someone's ashamed of. And think the only way I can be forgiven is if I work really, really hard and that the praises of men are on par with the praises of God and if I get those things, my wounded soul can be healed. I worked for a guy one time who never would apologize for anything. And uh, so he'd go off on us at work or something and never would apologize. And so the next day, he would, um, like, bless you financially or uh, praise you publicly. But it always come across flat. Because really, all it could have been was just, hey, I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, okay. And so it was always come across flat. Why? Because instead of humbling to apologize, it would turn into something of a covering up of a greater shortcoming... And make a public spectacle of something that could have been done in private uh, to really make it right. Uh, see, See, to cover up an inferiority complex, because here's the reality. Nobody in here is inferior. You're all made in the image of God. So the inferiority complex is a lie that you have to perform to get the attention of God. And so here's what God is trying to fight through uh, in our text today. He's trying to fight through that Zacchaeus can be heard without performing. But many times there's cries on the inside of us, hurts on the inside of us. And those hurts don't have a voice. Because we don't know how to express them. Humanity is a complicated sort. Y'all know that. I remember you ever got a thought one time and you're just like, man, why in the world did I think something that crazy? And it's like, we're, we're like really messed up people. And it, it, can, it can start with a wound. And we don't know how to express the wound. And we don't know how to care for it. So then it gets voiced in a personality, it gets voiced in an action, and either we bark loud enough to keep people away from that wound and posture ourselves as a people that that are ready to fight at the drop of a hat, or we cover it up with other things to make it look noble and good. Uh, But really, it's just a cry in our heart that needs to be expressed, that needs to be uh, dealt with. And when we can't find an expression, except being angry, we do weird things and we dream up ideas. Have you ever dreamed up that somebody was against you? And then you finally have the conversation and you realize, oh, they really weren't against me. Right? Have you ever had that? But your mind goes to all these places that, oh man, so-and-so was really, really uh, stacked, is really coming against me. And it's like, actually, that's not true at all is that you've created this reality in your mind based on an issue that you've yet to deal with. Because that's all fear is. Fear is this, false evidence appearing real. And God is calling us out of fear. But get this, the cry without a voice, God won't reject you for having a cry. Matter of fact, that's the way he wants to meet you And how he wants to answer you. Uh, Especially if you're vulnerable, broken, and honest. So today, Zacchaeus goes out on a limb. But Jesus isn't trying to saw off the other side. He didn't say, Lord, break that branch and make him fall out of there. He said, would you climb back down? That there was a call to God beyond the tree that Zacchaeus was in. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Matthew chapter 12 verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break. and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. See, God won't kick you when you're down. But he will pick you up and heal you. And some of us have gotten so used to being down that it's time to let Jesus pick you up And heal you and walk into the plans and the dreams and the purposes that God has for your life. Thank you for that golf clap. Praise God. Got the masters going on in church here. Luke chapter 19 verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. It's important to note here that Luke finds it important to call this man the chief tax collector. And what the chief tax gatherer would be, the one who contracted for sales and custom taxes. And at this time, Jericho had become a bustling city that was well populated with lots of commerce. And so Zacchaeus, could have been a rich tax collector without cheating his friends and family or uh, his people there. He could have been rich without all that, but the text tells us clues later to find out that he was not just collecting taxes, but he was putting in a little on the side in his pocket, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, he was one of these guys, and so he is the chief tax collector. He has attained a status that would seem really high. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was because he was short. He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So here is a man of short stature. And how in the world am I going to get Jesus to see me when I'm in a crowd and it feels like everyone else is taller than me? How am I going to get the attention of God when everyone else is way better than I am and here I am, short little old me? Zacchaeus gets the idea in order for Jesus to see me I better climb the tree. Zacchaeus has been performing his entire life to be seen. So what would be any different about this moment when Jesus comes to town? So we have a man Climbing a tree. See, sometimes when you're the shortest one in the crowd, it feels like you've got to climb and position yourself in some place where people could see you. I heard ministers say and preach sermons, and you can preach this a hundred different ways, but I've heard them say, Zacchaeus was positioning himself for a blessing. I submit to you, Jesus didn't want Zacchaeus in the tree, as we'll find out later. I submit to you that Jesus knows the number of hairs on each and every one of your head. And for some of you, that's more math than others. But he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, how much more you when you're going through something. See, the lie of the enemy is, I have to perform and position myself for God to see me. But I submit to you today that Jesus was going there to meet with Zacchaeus. Whether he got in a tree or not, he was on mission to find this man. Yeah. So why a sycamore tree? Seems kind of odd. It's not like our sycamore trees. Because these sycamore trees was like a sycamore fig tree or a mulberry fig, they called it in those days. And, and it had these figs that produced, but they were too hard to, uh, to ripen on their own. So what a person had to do is with their finger, fingernail or something sharp, they had to stab each fig, wait three to four days, and after that, uh, then the fig would ripen. So here was a man in a tree that appeared to have fruit, but the fruit couldn't ripen until that fruit had been punctured. See, sometimes we have to be punctured In order for us to go on into maturity and to walk in the purposes of God, this is what the prophet Amos was. He was a fig dresser, a vine or fig dresser, a tree dresser. This is what Amos did. And as Amos was called out of the tree to go be a prophet unto God, God is having to call Zacchaeus out of the tree to go be a spokesman for God. On the earth. This tree is not some small tree. This tree would be about the size of a walnut tree. With wide spreading branches. And give lots of delightful shade. Uh, It was always planted by waysides. So that it would create shade. Over the road. In which it encompassed. And so here is him. In this big shade tree. Almost. Almost. Trying to blend in maybe more than being song. Sing, song, sing, sorry, sorry. Need them educators to pray for me right now, pray for them. Now get this, the leaves on this tree are heart-shaped. Downy on the underside and fragrant. The fruit grows directly from the trunk itself on little sprigs. So the fruit's not even in the tree. The fruit's on the ground. Zacchaeus thinks it's in the tree. He thinks it's in the tree. Zacchaeus caught up in short man syndrome. Just a short guy in a tree. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Come down right now and quit trying to perform to get my attention. You already have it said to him, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So where was Zacchaeus? In the tree. Where did Jesus want to be? In his house. See, the pious Jews of the time would never enter in a tax gatherer's house because a tax gatherer was somebody who was uh, sided with the Romans and were... Collecting taxes from their people and giving it to the Romans and then they would take a little percentage for themselves and keep a little bit for themselves to pad their their own pockets. So the religious of the day would say we'll never go to a tax gatherer's house and we'll never eat his food. And the reason why they wouldn't eat his food is because they didn't know if he had tithed properly on every item in their house. So the food or the bread, he might not have brought the tithe into this place. So so they couldn't eat there because if they were to eat there, they would become potentially unclean. But Jesus takes a totally different approach. Jesus says, I'm not going to wait for you to become worthy to come eat with you. I'm going to come into your house and eat with you, and then you're going to become worthy. See, Jesus is creating a different paradigm. He's telling the church, you've got it all wrong. You've got people up in trees thinking they can see God like this. And you've yet to go in their house to let them know God is comfortable with them and wants to be in their life right where they are at. Jesus comes and has never met Zacchaeus, but he knows Zacchaeus' name. And he uses his name to call him out of the thing that he thinks is getting his attention. See, Zacchaeus is is in his mind earning something here. And Jesus is saying, come down. I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus. That God knows your name. Amidst all the tree climbing. And let's be honest. How noble and great did it look for a... Grown man to be climbing up in a tree. That's kid stuff, right? Verse 7, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And you know, Jesus knew they were going to talk about him. Right? But Jesus doesn't have a pride in his heart That worries about the opinions of others that keeps him from bringing himself to have encounters with those in whom he loves. That Jesus isn't worried about this guy's reputation or that guy's reputation or even what the church might say about him. He'll go on and have the encounter and be in the place to where he knows he should be. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything I will pay back four times the amount. Do you see what happened here? A man way over here has an encounter with Jesus in his personal space at his house and suddenly the man who knew nothing about or cared nothing about obeying the law, suddenly does something that's even above the Levitical law that Moses set in place. Grace will always outdo the law. Always. So here's a man that has an encounter with Jesus... Exodus 22 verses 1 through 4 say to pay it back a certain way. And and the only uh, thing that you had to pay back in Jesus' day, they had already softened that was as if you had uh, took someone's cattle or something to that effect. Uh, But he goes above and beyond, gives half his possessions to the poor, and then says he'll pay anybody back four times the amount. He has an encounter with Jesus and then begins to obey the Lord. And many times we think we've got to obey Jesus, and then we can have an encounter with the Lord. I want to tell you, if you have not had your encounter, you better have your encounter so that you can be empowered to obey the law of the Lord. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham." Do you see what Jesus does? Is He changes his identity and connects him into something that is bigger than himself and pulls him into the plan of eternal redemption, not exclude him and keep him out. So he says, this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. See, many Jewish people believe that salvation belonged to almost all Israelites by their virtue of descendants from Abraham. But do you remember what John the Baptist said? God could turn these stones into children of Abraham. And I submit to you, that was a prophetic statement. That's what God does. Is He takes stony hearts... And he turns them into sons of Abraham. And he saves them. And he sets them free. This is the great M.O. of God. That God doesn't just want to save you and come to your house. He's calling you into the family of God to be a child of Abraham. Jesus here was headed to Jerusalem to die. But he's still hanging out with those. Who didn't deserve it? See, Jesus isn't just teaching us how to live, Jesus is teaching us how to die. And on our way to death, this is how we ought to live. This is Jesus' way. See, sometimes it feels like we have to contort ourselves to be free. Many of us have felt this way at times, feel contorted, and some of my heroes are those in the, involved with the Underground Railroad, who had a system of setting slaves free. A slave by the name of Henry Box Brown, and in Richmond, Virginia, he was placed in a three-foot by two-foot crate and stuffed in there and nailed shut. And they mailed him to Philadelphia. It was a 27-hour journey, most of which upside down. And then when he finally arrived in Philadelphia, he was opened up as a free man. See, sometimes you have to contort yourself And change some things to really get free. And some of you feel like you're in a box. But God's saying if you will stay in this box when it's time for it to be opened, you'll be free. You'll be free. Some of you feel like you're in this dark journey. You're being tossed around upside down every which way. Telling you your day of freedom and visitation. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. See, Zacchaeus, he just wanted to be at Zacchaeus' house. And this is where he wants to be with us. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> And if anyone hears my voice and answers, I'll come in and sup with them. You know something? Zacchaeus didn't have time to clean up the house. He didn't have time to throw away the rigs. Oh, I got all church folk in here. Okay, 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 okay. I know better. He didn't have time to throw away all the beer bottles didn't have time to throw the cigarettes away. Yeah, you need to throw them out too. He didn't have time to clean up. But you know what? Jesus wasn't worried about it. Jesus just wanted to be in there because he's the only one that could clean them up. And sometimes being at church feels like being in a tree because it feels awkward. Not church people. Seeing everybody raise their hands. That seems weird. Down the altar, I ain't getting up and going in front of people. But it's all about bringing Jesus and taking him home with you. See, some of us have been content to stay in the tree. And God's saying, just let me come home with you. Would you get out of the tree? Would you come down immediately and open the door? let me come in. Jesus never showed up and said, man, this house is filthy. I'm leaving. He just said, open the door. Would you open the door? Would you let him examine every room that's in your heart? And let him come in and stay until it's healed. would you say, Jesus, you can come here and here, but this room is off limits, door locked. See, whatever you can't lay down at the feet of Jesus has mastered you, and he's not your Lord, because it that issue is dominating you, and it's time to get it out. It's time to get it out. Would you bow your heads with me?